This is Tommy's Outdoors 97. Today we're going to talk with Amy Dickman about human wildlife conflict. Amy is a incredibly respected and well-known scientist. Um, she is a the founder of Ruaha Carnivore Project and her field of work and field of expertise is in human wildlife conflict, uh, especially in human-dominated landscapes. Human-wildlife conflict is a subject I talked about on my podcast. Uh, it almost feels like in every single episode. What comes to mind is uh, 78, where we talk about human-seal conflict. Uh, episode 90, where we talked about black bear and conflict with black bear. But, you know, even if you look at all the rewilding episodes um, and in general, you know, it feels like whenever you talk about wildlife and conservation, uh, it seems like every possible animal and wildlife comes in conflict with us or we come into conflict with them. Either way, uh, we're going to dive uh, today with Amy into specificity and um, we will talk in general about human-wildlife conflict as well as we dive into some specific items. And um, before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast, as usual, quick message. If you like the podcast and if you like to help me and the podcast, you can do two things which cost you absolutely nothing. Number one is to share the podcast with your friends and family or any other people who you might think will be interested in the podcast, in the subjects I or we talk about here with my guests. Um, share the podcast, send them link, uh, retweet, share the post, whatever is your favorite way of sharing stuff with people. And secondly, uh, leave the rating, um, write a review, follow the podcast. It depends what platform you're listening it on. You know, like Apple allows you to uh, write a review and leave the five-star rating. Uh, Spotify doesn't, but you can follow. So um, all those ratings, uh, uh, follows, and so on helps greatly me and helps the podcast and ultimately translate into me having more energy and kudos for making more episodes. And yeah, now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Amy Dickman and Human-Wildlife Conflict. Emmy, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, first, I suppose the first question: you're you 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 such a prominent figure in in at least where I'm sitting. Like uh, I, I just got to ask straight away: Are you annoyed or tired being labeled? Oh, this is that trophy hunting lady, or or is, is it is it a thing? It is totally frustrating to be seen that way, partly because I don't really work on trophy hunting. That's not really my area of expertise. I work on human carnivore coexistence. I work on, you know, human carnivore, just coexistence in general and conservation. So trophy hunting has been such a tiny area of my research uh, expertise. 
that it's really bizarre to be labeled that way and particularly because it really doesn't fit with who I am you know I'm a vegetarian I'm an animal loving sort of bunny huggery type person so <laughs> I was always known when I was younger as going out and being the one who would save you know I would go and buy the crabs at the local market and free them back and do all this kind of stuff to save animals so it's totally bizarre my family find it endlessly amusing I'm seen as some pro hunting bloodthirsty killer because it's the exact opposite of who I am and it's just it is interesting though to me it really represents how polarized these debates become in conservation when actually all of the solutions are in the middle so to me it's an interesting a dynamic and one that is, yeah, that is totally unrepresentative of who I am, but has somehow become that way. And, and, you know, like I even some guests on my podcast were mentioning that they were following you closely on Twitter and all your, you know, uh, endless debates and arguments. And, you know, like usually my approach is like, you know, don't feed the troll, don't do it. You're just giving exposure. But I think I'm I'm ready to make an exception for you because you are so methodical and so patient in in arguing and like is it worth in the end like did did you did you have at least one person who at the res, as a result of this discussion said like huh, oh you know I never thought about that is that happened that it really does happen it's interesting what you say because I didn't have any experience of Twitter or any of this I joined Twitter a year ago and. And I'd sort of heard that, you know, we should engage. I've been out in the field for most of the time. So I got onto it and then I thought, well, actually, everyone has these rules about engagement. You know, keep it to happy stuff. Keep it to simple narratives. Don't get involved in the difficult stuff. Don't argue with people who are, who are abusive. I'm like, actually, no, that isn't the way to get honest discussions going. You know, we really have to find a way of talking across these polarized positions and really trying to understand each other's positions better. And for me, an awful lot about conservation, and particularly conservation science, is communicating that it is complicated. It is endlessly complicated. People think that conservation is simple, and it's not. Any professional in it knows just how much expertise is required. But because we present this simple, non-confrontive way on social media, it, it becomes simplified, and we are part of that. So I think that it's part of our duty as conservation scientists in particular to stand up for that complexity, to explain some of the nuance that we know. So which is why when I got involved in these Twitter things, um, yeah, I would say to people, you know, they would call me horrible names or or whatever. And I'd say, OK, it's, it's great that you're so passionate about wildlife and we have that in common. So using that as a starting point, you know, where do we start to disagree on things? And that's when you start to understand the positions in these debates. And if you don't engage uh, and really understand somebody who has a different position, we're never going to get further in finding the common ground. So to me, it's been really valuable for understanding the different positions in the debates. And it's been valuable. Some people have have changed their views. You know, there was a woman who called me all sorts of things I probably can't repeat on a podcast. And she really came around to it and said, my God, you know, I never thought of it like that. And it really once people hear the complexity, they understand that life is never black and white. And so it just means it, and it's not really about the person you're engaging with. It tends to be about the people following that person or the other people who just lurk in the background and see these debates and think, wow, it is more complicated than I thought it was. And that is an interesting and useful contribution, I think. Yeah, no, no doubt. Listen, don't, don't, don't change. <laughs> don't change. Don't change that. Um, so maybe just very, very briefly for, for at least part. So I'm expecting that a lot of my listeners know good and well who you are, but for maybe for people who are not aware or not that aware, can you just briefly tell us uh, what is the field that you're that that you're specializing in, and 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 maybe also you know how it how it started, how it came to be that you're 
ended up doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I am working, I'm a zoologist, so I work at the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit, which is part of the University of Oxford, and I focused on human carnivore coexistence and broader conservation issues. And I've always been passionate about big cats. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to work on them ever since I was a tiny child for no particular reason, and then did a zoology degree and finally got a scholarship to go to Wild Crew at Oxford, which is always the dream, uh, because I was, I'd seen all the big cat work they did there with David McDonald and with all these amazing people, I joined and was promptly given uh, a project on water shrews to work on, which was like minute and rather disappointing, I have to say. But spent some time working on water shrews. I say working on, I never found one of them. I don't think they actually exist in the <laughs> in, which, in which I was tasked. I think it was some sort of hazing test. Um, but anyway, I did my work such as it was on water shrews and things got bigger. And then finally, uh, I got to go out to Laurie Marker to the Cheetah Conservation Fund in Namibia and worked there. I ended up working there for six years, which is fantastic. Really opened my eyes again to the complexity. I, it was interesting. I went into that experience feeling just the same as many of the people I now engage with on Twitter. And I think I know your passion. I know where you're coming from because you have a certain understanding and experience of it. Going to Namibia and being there for six years really gave me a different understanding, particularly around human carnival conflict and the need to work with all kinds of different people. And then from that, though, I'd always had a particular passion for lions and really wanted to get out to East Africa. So I met Sarah Durant at the Serengeti Cheetah Project, went out to work with her and did my master's and my PhD in Ruaha. And Ruaha is in southern Tanzania. It's an incredible landscape, really beautiful. Um, but no sort of focused carnivore conservation attention there, despite having hugely important populations of lions and African wild dogs and cheetahs. So I started research there, discovered a huge amount of conflict with local people and then realized there was a massive need for a project uh, to work in that landscape. So when I finished my master's and my PhD, I got a fellowship at Oxford and went back and set up the Ruaha Carnival Project to look at reducing this conflict between people and wildlife and developing conservation solutions that we could hopefully use more broadly as well. Right. So uh, in, in human animal and human animal conflict or human carnivore conflict, is, it, it, it's so interesting from from various reasons. But before we jump there, I, I just need to qu quickly pick out you, you mentioned cheetah working on cheetah. How how cheetahs are, are doing in general as a species? That's a, that's, a, that's the first part of my question. And second part of my question or maybe where I'm coming uh, angle I'm coming at is, is that true? Or is is that possibility that cheetahs were on their way out anyway, naturally, because of a set of adaptations or lack of, uh, and, and what's happening now is only accelerating something that would happen anyway? Yeah, okay. So to answer both those points, cheetahs are not doing well. They are down to probably around 7,000 individuals uh, in Africa and increasingly scattered populations, increasingly small and fragmented populations. So all the kinds of pressures that we see with other large carnivores. And in terms of whether it is just a natural sort of acceleration of their pre-existing decline, I would say probably not, because if you look at cheetahs, they've been an incredibly resilient species. They have this genetic um, homogeneity, this uniformity across cheetahs, which is really an amazing finding when people first looked at it. And there were some hypotheses that actually the number of cheetahs had declined possibly to as low as one pregnant female at some point and then bounced back. So this was, you know, thousands of years ago, but that shows that cheetahs have an immense amount of resilience to recover. So they came back from very close to extinction towards, you know, a, a bigger proliferation across Africa again. So I, I think they have that ability. People wonder about their genetics and if, if they are too compromised, as you say. But I think they've shown that 
absolutely they have that ability to recover, to persist. And in some places they are coming back. So I think if we give them the environments and the places where they can do it and we have those large landscapes without as much human pressure where they can coexist with people because they often don't do as well in core protected areas. And we're seeing across Africa this sort of this sort of um, shift down, the area is shrinking down to core protected areas where you tend to have higher populations of species like lions and spotted hyenas and leopards. And the cheetahs don't tend to do quite as well there. So they'll be looking more towards the edges of those areas, which then they overlap with people. So they have a different set of pressures. But I think, again, it is human caused rather than a natural decline. Right, right. It's, it's interesting. Okay, so now let's let's talk about uh, conflict with with wildlife and with carnivores. And I, I, I would just like really want to start that somewhere. And um, obviously, you 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 spending your professional life trying to mitigate that conflict. And I, I suppose my question is like how how you deal with how deeply rooted that is, because surely that has to be very deeply rooted because how i see it is like from the very beginning of humans as a species we were fighting against well like every single animal is trying to you know fight against the environment and and fend off the predators and it just happened that we are like so incredibly successful as a species that we are just just like a, <laughs> right now basically going over everything but that tells me that this has to be so deep in in our natural like how how you and once you have a, that realization how do you even begin because it seems like you you're trying to change the very fabric of what brought us where we are i think you're completely right in that this is so deep seated and i think the way we think about top predators in particular is fascinating because as you say from the dawn of humankind we have fought against these animals. We have been fearful of them. We have, they have shaped our very evolution of what it means to be human. And so they are deeply, deeply embedded in our psyche. But equally with that fear, equally comes um, just a fascination with them and amazement, a love of them, which is equally powerful. And I think we can see this from the very first figurative art that people carved out of woolly mammoth ivory was the head of a lion on a human body. You know, you look at cave paintings 30,000 years ago from France, and it's extensive depictions of lions in all these different activities. So even though these animals were feared, absolutely and rightfully so, they were also revered. And it's that it's that twin um, feeling and sort of connection with particularly big predators saying they're scary, but they're amazing and we love them. And I think every one of us has that, that feeling about it. Of course, if you're living in Dublin or in the UK, uh, anywhere, you know, somewhere where you don't have to live side by side with them, then you tend to have the elevation of the feeling they're beautiful and wonderful. As you say, if you are still living in places where you have no good defense against them, where your very livelihoods are likely to be, you know, taken out from under you, your children could be eaten by them. So then that's a very, very different scenario. But even there, I would say, when we are working with local tribes and we're talking to them about lions and other species, they still have very much that exact same twin uh, twin sort of and often divergent views about them they they say you know they are beautiful and they're amazing they don't want them to go extinct because they think they're incredible but they don't want them to live within 30 kilometers of their house that's often what we would find so everyone wants them to exist but no one wants to exist with them and that's a very challenging situation to have and so if you're going to change that situation to come back to your core question how do we change that i often think it's like cars if you were an alien coming from space and you landed on 
the earth. You would see all of these metal creatures racing around that kill thousands of people every year. And you think, why on earth don't you just get rid of them? You know, they're just a nightmare. And the reason we don't get rid of them is because they make our lives easier. And critically, we choose to have them there. They, We want them. We want them so much that we pay for something that could well kill us in the end. And so I think if you are thinking about how to incentivize coexistence, we need to get to that level. We need to reduce the costs of living with these animals. But you need to go well beyond that. And you need to give people real tangible reasons and incentives to have these species there. And I think that's where we can use the global power and the global passion of these species that really is strong when you're not living with them. How do we translate that level effectively, that passion down to the local level? And that can be financially in particular, where international communities and the global public pay for the presence of these species on the land. And therefore, those species become the driver of local development. And suddenly, if the lion being around is enabling your child to go to school and you're not suffering as many costs from it, the cost benefit ratio is enough that suddenly you might choose to want to have it around. And that's kind of how I approach trying to reduce that conflict and improve coexistence. Right. And so obviously the the immediate pushback you get, and, and this is what I what I think, because obviously I, I had like also many of discussions like that. So from really people who are really passionate about the wildlife, really passionate about nature, the 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 pushback, the typical pushback to this is like, well, we cannot transform, you know, we cannot try to monetize everything. We cannot hang a monetary value on absolutely everything we need to. So I, I, I guess where that point of view agrees with what you're saying, like we need to fundamentally change how we think about it, you know, wildlife or like carnivores, but at the same time, but we cannot monetize that. And is, I'm, I'm you're sure she, yeah. I don't think it's it's one or the other. I think we do need a fundamental shift in how we view nature and that recognition of how it underpins everything about what it means to be human and our global, not only the economy, but health and everything about the world is obviously nature is absolutely central to that. And we need that non-economic value. We need to you know, look at cultural values and all those kinds of things. But that to me is a slightly longer term shift in the very moment right now, especially when you're in the areas where you have a lion that might eat your cattle and therefore then you're not going to be able to send your child to school. You're not going to be able to eat the next day. These are things that just, it's way too esoteric for people. So I think for the people who are really the ones impacting change right now, we have to recognize that those values need to be much more tangible. And that often means economic value. It isn't just economic value. It can be cultural value too. We've talked a lot with the Barabag, one of the tribes that we work with, that they have a very complex relationship with lions in particular, and they do want them there, but they fundamentally want them there so they can kill them and get prestige and status. And it's all bound up into what it means to be a man and these very complicated relationships. But then you can work with them and talk about how those cultural um, needs might be met through conservation. Is that possible? If so, what might it look like? And so these kinds of relationships where you unpick both the financial uh, value and I do think we need to massively increase the financial value on the ground, but also respecting the the wider cultural values, the existence values that people have for these species. So I don't think it's choosing one or the other. I think it's using a tool uh, much more to deliver that wider value later on. Right, right. Um, so you mentioned that that people you work with they they like the, they like the animals, that they, but they don't like they're too close, and th- this is. I see so many parallels, and maybe we can we can jump later on between the parallels, if they are any, and what, what's easier, what's more difficult between what you see in Africa and what we deal here, let's say in in 
you know, north, rich north or west culture, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, which one of like, I, I often see two types, two models that people talk about. And I understand that this is all a spectrum and I'm just picking, picking separate things, but just for the purpose of the discussion, right? The, the one model is, which I, which I call, uh, you know, let's say naive rewilding model where, oh, we need to change our, our attitude to nature. We need to live with nature, you know, learn to tolerate and, and so on and so forth. And then there's another um, model that I, I think is called fortress conservation, where we have an electrified fence that goes five meter up and two meters deep. And behind the fence, we have all the animals and wildlife. And here we have our shops and fields and, and so on and so forth. And I think that both models, they, the one that we live with nature, clearly not going to work because those carnivores will be killing cows and sheep and whatever else. The other one, I don't particularly think that the other one will work either because that fence will be on some so much pressure that we're going to be moving that fence in only one direction, I'm afraid. What, like, how you're, is there any one of these models that you're more in favor of? Or like, or maybe you think that one of them can work in some capacity? Neither, as you say, it's a spectrum, and neither of those models I intrinsically like for exactly the reasons you've said. I mean, the fortress, small islands of protected areas, it's not going to work long term. So have these tiny little landscapes, these patches of land, which are nothing really ultimately, they're not going to be much more than a big safari park or something. And as you get increasingly populous uh, communities, as you get increasingly democratic communities, again, unless that really has value for people, it's just not going to stick. So I think that's going to be very, very difficult. And it's not the kind of wild that I would want. I want to see these big, intact landscapes with thriving biodiversity, where you have top predators and elephants roaming around. You have you have these big, vast landscapes, and that will not be delivered just. I mean, protected areas are vital. Sometimes you need fences, but it, that can't be just, we can't rely on that. And partly the reason for that is that if you do that, you're actually cutting off getting that value of biodiversity down to the local people. One of the real things when we're looking in Africa and countries like Tanzania, these people have immense wealth potentially on their land through the natural resources, through species like lions. And if we could bring that, and including primarily financially, if we could bring a financial incentive for recognising the conservation of the species on their land, that is a way of making them much, much richer and much more, you know, helping them with sustainable development. So I think it shouldn't be cut off from people in that way. The second one where you talk about people learning how to tolerate. I think the problem there is we never, people can't tell you how to tolerate things. You don't just want to tolerate something because someone tells you you should. I can't think of one example where we willingly tolerate something we're just told we have to, um, unless it's literally laid down in law, like paying your taxes or something. Um, people need to have a reason to tolerate things. Hence back to things like the car example, cars cause damage, but they give us a very tangible reason they make our lives better. So for me, the middle position is saying to people, you have this immense uh, resource, this incredible biodiversity that is worth and is increasingly worth more and more internationally. People are recognising, particularly with COVID-19, the values of wild places and wild species and keeping them intact. So if we can get that to pay for itself, everything from things like debt for nature swaps, biodiversity credits, um, whether it's tourism, all of these kinds of models, uh, trophy hunting in some areas, whatever it needs to be to actually translate that international value down to the local level in a way that empowers people, that is the way that I think we end up with these bigger, broader landscapes. But it needs quite a seismic change of international value 
being unlocked to come down into to enable that at a local level. Mm. Do you think that that value? Because what 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 I notice that that when you're talking about the value that we're trying to bring is is kind of like a us who have money will bring the value to them who don't have money but have lions. Uh, is there a, like a trap there somewhere that at the end of the day we encouraging all those wealthy people to take their money and fly over there and see the lions and pay these poor people who can you know sell lion sightseeing tours is 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 that I you think, know, problematic at some well, way? there are problems all over the space we all know how god it's like an ethical mindful this entire conservation <laughs> yeah. and look and just by the way i'm playing a devil's advocate Good. a little it's bit the, because i'm trying to tease out they're vital know, you know. questions these are the really interesting questions and i love thinking about this stuff it's so important but i think it's no more of a trap than anything else say you had um a a coal mine, okay, and that's your resource, and you're willing to have people pay to use that resource. Okay, that's if it's something that is freely entered into, and it's something that is recognizing the resources that you have, and there is a market for them, and you want to you want to utilize that, you want to get into something where you can actually develop your country economically through the presence of this wildlife, oh, not wildlife, but whatever resource it happens to be. That is a fairly established model. It has loads of problems. You know, there's no there's no sugarcoating the fact there's loads of issues with with many of these kinds of models. But I think what we're failing to do at the moment is recognize the value of biodiversity. So if, say, a country like wherever, Gabon, Tanzania, somewhere, says that we have all of this value, incredible value, locked up in our forests and our savannas, and this doesn't have to be without people. These can be areas with people where people are utilizing and maintaining that landscape as part of a living landscape, you know, with with humans and biodiversity alongside it. But they should be recognized that they are keeping that wildlife, which is a global good. And so I think it is on the richer communities who have largely extirpated all of their wildlife and committed all sorts of appalling acts across the globe to actually now be the ones to say, we have built our wealth on that exploitation. And so what we need to do is even up. And it's a classic market failure. We have an international value on something, but locally it's a cost. So that's where we need to even up these things. And if at the end of the day, somewhere like any of these countries decides that actually they don't want to invest in their biodiversity, they want to make the entirety of the Serengeti a big strip mall and follow a, a very commercial non-wildlife based model that is their choice that is absolutely their choice what we should be doing is trying to make that hopefully the less attractive choice because of the value bound up both locally potentially and globally with the the conservation of these species so i think as long as it's done in a way that's not imposed on people this is about the rights of people to decide and the rights of countries to decide then i think we can really yeah make a better future but that value has to be front and center of it in my opinion Mm, so many questions, Amy. Um, where do I start? So uh, maybe on, on something that we, uh, we we have a limited time. So something that is more important to me, at least, is, is interesting. You mentioned that that has to be decision made by the local people, and this is again very argument that that is very often brought up. Like, oh, you know, we tell them what they what they should do or shouldn't do, and and maybe a little parallel um, example is for example brazil right brazil decide or actually government decides like yeah we're going to cut the amazon and run the cattle there that's our decision right so how how to reconcile um, where it is like oh let's look you know power to local people and do you do what you want until 
<laughs> you do something that we don't like, which might be, you know, either or. It's incredibly hard. Like where you where you draw the line? Like you, as long as you're protecting wildlife, local people no, no, good. No, no, and that's what I think. This is absolutely up to people to decide, and we have done it. We can't sit here in the UK and say you have to maintain your wildlife. We haven't done it, and so we absolutely cannot expect other people to do it. And so what you have to do, in my mind, is make the choices so attractive to keep the wildlife there that it would be really seen as domestically. Uh, you know, an untenable choice if you decided if the i have no idea what figures from it but if the amazon rainforest was worth trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars annually to brazil okay and that was a huge source of its revenue through whatever financial mechanism is internationally uh levied on it then that would become bizarre to brazil to be able to cut it all down and say actually we want cattle which are going to benefit lots of individual people yes but but it's not going to benefit the country and of course there are ethical issues with this do you end up with huge protected areas and lots of people living around and not able to use it freely and what's their local rights and these are decisions that have to be made within a country but i think at the moment where we are so far from those decisions because there is no mechanism where wildlife apart from things like maybe photo tourism or trophy hunting in, in protected areas there is very little mechanism where people are incentivized to keep big intact landscapes and keep biodiversity particularly beyond the borders of protected areas so there is so much scope we can make towards moving towards that idea of there being a real value that people can unlock something for instance like carbon credits for instance carbon credits with biodiversity credits where you can say you know in, this isn't reliant on users coming in and doing what they want and excluding local people it's recognizing that in these often human used landscapes still maintain immense amounts of biodiversity and wildlife naturally recognized for them so they get an income stream just for doing basically what they're doing but making sure that there is still uh biodiversity there the still habitat maintains that you're not having people resort to really sort of um uh, sort of clear cutting or any of these things that are often driven a lot by poverty so i think we need to we need to start making these choices much more attractive ultimately and then it is up to governments and and hopefully if you've got a democratic situation the local people influence the governments and what choices the governments are seen to make so i do think local rights is fundamental in this but we need a rejigging of the global model so that so the wildlife is an attractive choice and often at the moment it's just not yeah and how uh, in in your estimation how are we whoever that we is how are we doing in 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 putting those those models in place we're not doing well at all in my mind I and mean, i think <laughs> we are so far behind the curve it's good to see it starting to be discussed i mean there was the recent does gupta review looking at the true economic value of nature just this week there was a report out by the african leadership university looking at the state of the wildlife economy and nature i think it's becoming much more we've got now this sort of business of conservation um conference that goes on we've got these discussions and a much more empowered uh community groups get taking part in this and recognizing this international value that of the wildlife that they live with and how how should those models work and what rights do they have and it's very important those rights aren't undermined globally so i think there's a lot of positive movement on this um it always feels i think like too little too late because you watch the amount of destruction you think my god this stuff needs to happen now you know it needs to scale up now but i think i do believe these models will get traction uh we for instance in our project have just gone carbon neutral actually climate positive so doubling our offsetting of all of our carbon offsets using lion carbon which is a model which you know provides revenue to local people by maintaining these sort of community forests and maintaining biodiversity so we see them starting to happen more and more um they need to happen faster in my opinion and they really need to get traction 
with the big financial institutions. And you're starting to see that when they look at climate change risks and they look at the different organizations and banks that are at risk of that, they start to recognize that actually you can't build forever on foundations of sand. You have to have solid foundations for us. That is going to be a good nature. And so, yeah, I think it will happen more and more. It's just it needs to happen even faster. Yeah. Do you feel sometimes like like uh, those nature conservation purists, uh, often their opinions are counter counterproductive? Uh, versus like you know what I mean I, you, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you've, you've been through way more of this than I than I was that you present like to me you presenting very uh, down to earth grounded points of view and and like you said yeah we can we can think about it what should be and what we should be doing but we need to do something tomorrow and next week to keep that lion keep that Definitely. elephant keep that alive and and then there are well-meaning people who are like oh you want to get big financial institutions involved oh my god they are the reasons for all these problems this is you know and, and i i often feel feel that way there is this this uh, almost like a anarchistic sentiment like let's let's dismantle everything let's, you know like whoa if we do that then wildlife is toast. That's the first thing that is toast if we do that. I understand. I mean, I was just having a Twitter exchange this morning with someone who very much was of that opinion saying, you know, I've, you know, capitalism is the problem and use is the problem and anything, you know, just commodification is the problem. And we need to, we need to get back to this. It's never really existed, as you said, but find some utopian vision where we all coexist for the greater good of just that that's the right thing to do. It is a lovely vision. I'd love to have a world like that. But like you say, I'm very much a pragmatist. I am, you know, when we're in the field, we see these animals being killed day in, day out. You see with your own eyes the habitat getting pushed back and the natural habitat being destroyed as you fly over. I think we have to work now. We have maybe 20 years to really make a difference for a species like the lion. That's it. That's all we have. So millennia, millennia of people who have revered this cat you know, the most common national animal in the world. And it's down to our generation now to decide what the future of that will look like. And I think we don't have time to rebuild the whole human society. There's not, people don't want to actually rebuild the whole human society because they do like to be able to sit there and order on Amazon and get the benefits and have a nice life. So let's use what we've got. Let's use human nature to say, what do we value and how do we value it? And how do we make sure that wildlife has that value? I heard a great quote that somebody said that, all too often, wildlife is priceless but valueless. And it, giving it a value doesn't mean you have to sell it. And I think that's a that's an important thing to get across. It just means that you recognize the value. So if you destroy an area, the lost value of that animal or that wildlife and that habitat, more importantly, is really recognized as well. So we need to be having these discussions. And rather than rail against the big banks and the corporates and everyone and the whole of society, let's work with what we've got because there's no other way, in my opinion. We have to do it. We have to do it now. Mm. You mentioned earlier um, about living with those animals, and you mentioned that when we have a land where you know some wildlife uh, exists, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be devoided from humans, and that the humans can live there. Um, is it not the the presence of modern humans? Let's call them, and and by modern humans, I I don't mean Homo sapiens. I mean the ones who order stuff on Amazon in itself changes that that habitat and changes that area into something that we well don't want this to turn in the first place it's it's almost like a inevitable 
mechanisms that as soon like we already know what happens if you if you cut cut, cut loose a bunch of people in the habitat with wildlife we know what happens like wildlife gets pushed out right so is it like we talking about something that is not really possible so i'm now i i think now in my head i'm going back into fortress conservation but you know like how is it possible they those people being there will be affecting wildlife in a probably negative way so for instance i think it does go back to the point of fortress conservation if we don't accept humans as part of these conservation landscapes then we the only thing you end up with is the fortress conservation and i think we both agree that long term that is not going to be the way forward either because ultimately that land will be more valuable in another way because we haven't given it that value we haven't embedded it properly in in those landscapes so i think core protected areas are really important and i think we should have some spaces globally where there isn't you know where there is space set aside for wildlife i think that's really important to have strictly protected areas as part of that landscape and again those should be decided by the countries you know the uk for instance needs to do far far better at that kind of stuff we have people using all of our protected areas they're not really protected areas so i think we need to have equitable and open discussions about what protected areas should look like but i do think they're important first of all to have some areas without that human use but saying that most most wildlife range for many species is outside core protected areas even for species like lions which are very reliant on protected areas still a significant amount of their range a minority of the lions but still an important amount of their range is beyond protected areas and also those are connective corridors between those areas so you have to ensure that people and human dominated landscapes are also part of conservation and just as a very tangible example of how that can work we found this around Ruaha so in southern Tanzania where I work huge amounts of lion killing on the border of the protected areas because of course the lions were coming out of the national parks which are unfenced which is one of the huge benefits of uh, conservation in Tanzania but to local people that was a massive cost and they were coming and of course people killed huge numbers of lions And so we were seeing this massive amount of decimation of of wildlife on the village land but again they had no reason to keep them around and there's no point talking to them and saying but you know internationally they're valuable and you should really like no one cares it's just it's it's not going to it's just laughable to somebody who's actually right there facing the real dangers so instead we thought well how do we bring the value down we talked about doing all the classic things that conservation projects do so we started community benefit programs focused on their needs the what the local people have told us they wanted to so healthcare education veterinary medicine and this worked well people liked us but whereas they liked the project but they didn't equate it to the wildlife itself so they were still killing the wildlife but liking the project i thought of course that makes sense because we haven't tied it to the wildlife and so then at the same time we were doing camera trapping and people were stealing our camera traps because again they didn't feel that they were particularly engaged in it it wasn't for them and at the same time I thought both of these things need rejigging and so instead of us doing the camera trapping they can do the camera trapping the villagers so we give the camera traps to the village they employ them they train them they they place them out there and the more wildlife that's recorded on village land then that's tied directly to the community benefits that are coming in so that wildlife becomes this important stream of community development not by doing anything differently apart from maybe them saying well you know that guy over there is constantly poisoning the waterhole because he wants to get some of the antelope there but maybe if he doesn't do that then the whole village benefits and you could see the communities themselves really taking ownership of this and we've seen much increased tolerance of wildlife on the land it's become a major driver of community development just from having wildlife often very obscurely wildlife they wouldn't even really notice they had you know in the background almost maintained within and this is easier because it's a often a pastoral a mixed sort of agropastoral landscapes so you've got space for wildlife but it's again providing that value and people will say well it's donor dependent and and is it kind of um so you know patronizing to give people 
benefits that are contingent on the presence of wildlife. And again, we're back to the ethical discussions. We have these discussions all the time. But when you talk to the communities about them, they say, well, if this is something that there is wealth and interest and value in internationally, we should get it. We do want to get that stuff. So they see it as their right that they should get value, from it, which I think is, is correct. So Yes, we're trying on the ground and we see that these things can work and the mechanism can work in many different ways, depending on the threats and depending on what people critically want. But I think you absolutely can build enough tolerance in these areas to maintain biodiversity as long as you also reduce the costs with them. You know, you make sure people are protected from big dangerous species. You make sure that they feel this is something that they actively want, not that's imposed upon them. Mm. Um, what, what in your in your view, I, I'm going to switch gears a little bit now. And in your, your view, what is the difference or maybe what we can learn when we talk about in context, you know, of UK and Ireland specifically, because they're outside of the mainland, when we talk about, but also in mainland Europe, where we have wolves and we have a conflict with wolves, right? And on, on the up Great Britain and Ireland, when they, even if you mention bringing back wolves, there's like, whoa, is there anything that we could learn or get experience from the work that you you do in in africa where where these conflicts are very real and I, i'm getting there much more severe for people or is the difference in wealth so big that there is very little of the learnings that you have and your team have that could be potentially applied either in europe in the countries where that that wildlife already is there and causing conflict or maybe, you know, even uh, during reintroduction projects? No, I think despite the wealth, there is so much more that is just common humanity about this and common understanding of the dynamics of human wildlife conflict. So if you're looking at whether you're looking at wolves in the US or the idea of wolves in the UK, the fundamental thing you have to do is build on the local engagement, the local understanding. So talk to people, listen to what they're worried about. People will have a long-standing hostility to the idea of wolves if they feel they're imposed upon them. If farmers just feel that wolves have been released and that suddenly their sheep are getting eaten and they were never consulted, you're building up this hostility there that is not so much about the wolf versus the sheep. It's actually about the imposition of the government on the rights of the rural person. So a lot of that is exactly the same. You need to say to get them around a table, talk about it and say, what would it what would it mean to you? What are the risks? How would you feel some ownership over this? What would be the benefits that you could do? And I think everything from engaging people properly, we've done things like, again, through the camera trapping, if you, or the collaring for us of large carnivores as well. When you get people to, to just to understand the wildlife that's there and to really sort of bond with it and think about it, not as just these evil animals being imposed upon them, but these actual animals that are living alongside them on this land. It sounds very wishy-washy, but it makes a difference in the way that you think about the animals there. And I think all of these things just, it takes a lot of engagement. It takes real engagement and it takes making sure that people get benefits as well, that they just don't feel that they're bearing all the costs and somebody else is getting the benefits. So how are those benefits going to be equally distributed so that people can feel their sheep are protected, but also that they have you know, real reasons for keeping them there. There was a great example in Sweden with, I think it was wolverine dens and some other species, I think it might have been lynx, but where they did a performance, a uh, payment for presence. And they said, okay, whoever has a breeding den on their land gets, I think it was 25,000 euros equivalent or something to the to the local, uh, the local couple of households. I can't remember how they set it up, but it was a clear payment saying, if this happens on your land, you will get benefit. And it really changed the The perception does very much of what we use down in Tanzania. We've built on those performance payment models. And we just need to be open to the fact that those should be built in. There should be recognition and benefits for people that are likely to outweigh the costs. There will still be costs. Let's not be stupid about it. But 
But we have to have those open discussions. And I think maybe things like the community assemblies where you get people around a table, you talk about really contentious issues and you start to listen respectfully to these different views and say, well, maybe this is a way forward and people feel more engaged. So I think we can learn a lot from all of those conflict mitigation processes, regardless of where you are. Mm. Listen, Amy, we, we will be wrapping this up uh, shortly. I know you have a meeting coming up. Uh, so just to, uh, to, to, as a final thought, what advice would you give um, to people who are you know, like-minded like yourself, who want to work towards protection, who wants to work towards mitigation of conflict with carnivores? Um, what advice would you give? Because I, I tell you what the problem I see, that very often people getting entrenched in their opinions and they're getting labeled. There's, they often labels themselves. And then when two people with opposing labels, seeing it, there's the, impossible, the dialogue is impossible, right? I, I, I've, I've seen that. Like, I'm not talking to him. I know he's, I, I know I'm not talking to him. And he, I, I'm not talking. What advice would you give people to avoid this, to not, to not you know, get themselves in the situation where, they're effectively dead for what they're trying to do because nobody wants to talk to them because they feel they already know have the label. Well, you could be talking to the very worst person because, as you said, many people have already tried to view me in a certain way. But my view on that, and when you said, what would your what would your advice be to somebody passionate about stuff? My very first thing, even before you got into that, would be exactly the same about keeping an open mind. That is the number one thing, I think, in life in general, but in conservation, because it is so complicated. And what your initial answer might be maybe so far off the mark because you don't understand the real complexities and my views on all these topics have changed a hundred percent since I was first flying out to Africa I remember vividly looking out through that little porthole window in the in the plane and looking at this and thinking, wow when would I first see an elephant and there are elephants down there and there are lions down there not once did I think there are people down there which is crazy I didn't give the humans a thought and secondly you know I had all these preconceptions about things like trophy hunting and how awful it was and and it was working with Laurie for years that made me think, wow, she's willing to talk to everyone. Even these people who have sometimes killed, in that case, cheaters in horrible ways that must hurt her. Like each of us are passionate about this, but it must hurt her, yet she's still polite and she will sit with them and engage and she will be respectful. And I really took that through thinking the thing that you can do here, you can be open-minded and you can be respectful of different opinions. And it can take a long time. It can take a long time of trying to engage with people in different ways. I've had many people, because the label that people like to put on me, not want to talk to me, not want to engage. They will cut me off. They will throw me out of meetings. They will just refuse to engage. But I don't understand why, because I would engage with anyone, really, because I think that engagement with people who think differently is the way that we find where our common ground is. And you connect as people, because for all the differences that we have, we share 90% of our passion, I would think, is on the same stuff. We we agree that we want wildlife, we want wild spaces, we hopefully respect human rights. All of these things are common grounds and where there'll be elements we disagree on mechanisms, but those are just mechanisms. And if we are trying, if we're starting to antagonize each other and make each other the enemy, I often say, you know, if you if you make that the battle, we have lost the war because there are so few people that are passionate about wildlife. We need to band together to find common ground, to focus on our shared goal, not the little things that divides us. So to anyone who's in these discussions, you know, really try not to become too polarized. Try to look for the common ground, try to look for the shared value. And then that is where you will start to open up the conversations. And hopefully we can get towards a better future for, 
yeah, for people and for wildlife ultimately, which is what we all want. As a words words of wisdom, uh, Amy. Very last question: what, how, how you see the future? Are you are you optimistic for the future for wildlife and and biodiversity, or are you uh, you know not not so optimistic and I think I am inherently I'm an optimist. I'm a very positive person. That's who I am. Um, there was a moment I remember recently when my six-year-old daughter said to me, I want to, I love lions. I want to do what you do in the future, Mum. I want to work with lions. And it cut me like to the core for a bit because I thought, wow, will there be lions? Will there be lions in any significant number? And there will be lions. I'm not one of those people who thinks they're going to get go extinct by 2050. You know, there will be lions, but will they be in, in tiny fenced areas where you can go and stare at them? Will they be anything like all the magic and all the stuff that drew me to it, you know, and has drawn, drawn people to wildlife for so many millennia? So it made me sad to think of that. And I thought, well, I think there will be. And I think we are starting to recognize and maybe COVID-19 has really started to to accelerate those conversations because we realize we are not indomitable. We are not invincible against the natural world. We are part of a connected system. And with all these changes we're starting to see about valuing nature, about communities having more voices. Um, I think these things can really build on strong foundations. And I am positive that we don't want to lose species like lions. So, and we don't want to disempower communities so we can build a better future. And I have every, I'm going to commit everything I have to be part of that, definitely. <laughs> uh, definitely, I, I also feel like a tide is start to turn slowly, slowly, but it, it thinks it's start to turn. Amy, thank you very much. I appreciate your time very much. Thank you very much. Great to be on here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 